You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Our Heavenly Father, our merciful and gracious God, We thank you that we get the privilege and the freedom to gather together on this day, every time we gather, to acknowledge your generosity to us in Christ. We don't gather for pep talks or, let me rephrase that, Lord, we shouldn't be gathering for pep talks or inspirational speeches, but to hear from you, from your word, words that you have spoken to not only us, but generations of believers in all parts of the world and ethnic groups. The same word, the same gospel, transforms our hearts and everybody else's. We thank you for that privilege. We thank you for our time in the word. We thank you for our gathering. And we thank you for your presence with us. We do ask in that grace and mercy that you open the eyes of our hearts to see the truth of your word and your word to us as a church but today, even more importantly, as individuals, as we look into and are maybe even challenged uh, with the gospel in our own hearts. So we thank you for this time, and we give you the glory. Amen. I was reading an article this week about uh, counterfeit products, sold, particularly sold in the United States. Um, but in worldwide, it's estimated, of course, since it's counterfeit, we can only estimate it's estimated that there is, it's a $250 billion business to counterfeit things and sell them as the real McCoy. And there's lots of reasons why this is escalating, becoming a greater and greater problem. First of all, the better counterfeiting methods and whatever it is, apparel, leather goods, money, electronics. It's just we're getting better at copying things and stealing things. Another reason is manufacturing is being offshored to other parts of the world. And with the manufacturing is actually intellectual property that tells them how the stuff's made. So now that you already have that, you can go ahead and make the product yourself. Uh, Also, with the Internet... You have now, most people can be anywhere and have a global market and be anonymous. And uh, for, for some, in some respects, outside the reaches of the law, though not totally. Uh, the article went on to identify the nine, nine most common counterfeited goods to, by, by dollar value and sold in the United States. They include, and these, most of these should not be surprises, optical media like DVDs and games and stuff like that. This is the one that surprised me, labels and tags. I mean, how's this for genius? You don't even have to copy the product. Just copy the label, sell the label so somebody can slap it on another product. Genius, genius, okay. Bad genius, bad genius, okay. Uh, Computers and accessories, footwear, pharmaceuticals and personal care, uh, apparel and accessories, consumer electronics, watches and jewelries, and the number one dollar value of counterfeited goods sold in the United States is? Anybody want to guess? Handbags and wallets. Okay, handbags and wallets. That says, a lot of, that says a lot about our culture, I think, but it is. Now, unless we think, oh, well, somebody's paid $500 for a $50 purse, sucks to be them, okay. Uh, it's much more serious than that, and that's the point of the article. The article was to go on and say that what's being counterfeited is expanding, and it really is becoming an epidemic problem. For example, things like exploding airbags that spew flames when they go off. 
kind of a problem. Chainsaws whose handles fall off, exposing the hands to the blades. Uh, Seatbelts that become come unfastened. Uh, flammable lithium batteries. Basically, you have a pyrotechnic bomb in your appliance because uh, the lithium will burn uh, if it's not sealed properly. Uh, diet pills that cause multiple strokes in people because it's not the diet pill that they thought they bought, though it's labeled as if it is. And uh, one of the ones that I think is equally outrageous is cancer drugs that are sold for the treatment of cancer that turn out to be vials of water and mold. Now, we can stand at both the hugeness of the counterfeiting problem and the cost of it and also the risk of it, but I want to talk today about a bigger counterfeiting problem. Today, something that's more prevalent and far more serious than consumer goods being sold as, that are counterfeits being sold, and that is counterfeit worship. That is worshiping somebody other than the God who deserves to be worshipped. And this is not just something that has financial risk or safety risk. It's much worse than that because it robs God of his glory and it also has eternal risks for people. We have been going through a series concurrently where we have been talking about what does it mean to follow, be a follower of Jesus personally, as families, and as a church. And the four basic questions we're wrestling with throughout this year is who is God, what has he done, who are we, what are we to do? And we're doing that in multiple ways. And part of that is the pathways, pathways, uh, our pathways discipleship process, as you, most of you know if you've been around, is a design for us to say, how do we do that? Since we know who God is and what he's done, which is the gospel in the center, it's all centered on the gospel. The second part is, who are we? That's our identities in Christ. And there's numerous descriptions. We have focused on three, servants, family, and ambassadors. And then from there, we have a mission that's somehow it's cut off from the, the outside of the, the thing there. So we are, we're focusing now on, on servants. What does it mean to be servants? And we want to go more than, hey, this is what we are, but how do we do that? H- how do we function as servants of Christ? How do we grow and get better at being servants of Christ? So there are three steps in the pathway. The servants of Christ is, point, is the red pointing up. And there are three steps or aspects of that. Scripture, which we dealt with in March. Uh, prayer, which we dealt with in April, and worship, which we're going to focus on in May. So we're going to, just like we have done the other months, the first Sunday of the month, we're going to talk about worship and give you a project to work on for the month. And then for the other three Sundays, we'll be back in Ephesians to show how what we're teaching with Pathways is the same thing Paul's saying to the Ephesians as a church. So today's the focus of today. Again, out of our identity as servants, what does it mean to us to function like that? I want, this is the big idea of what I want to talk about today. Because the gospel changes our identity to be servants of Christ. Every servant can lead a life of worship, lead a life of worship by three things, renouncing counterfeit worship, remembering why we worship, and realigning our lives to express worship. By the way, there is a handout if you want to follow along. Also, it's the handout that you can take with you to do your projects as you go. We see, first of all, that we uh, can live a life of worship by renouncing counterfeit worship. By renouncing counterfeit worship. We're going to look at, uh, just briefly, in Romans 1, 18 through 25. And in this passage, Paul explains the fundamental reason why there's a judgment of God on humanity. 
And the main reason we always throw out is sin. Well, what is sin? When we talk about sin, that's that religious word. It's a biblical word. It's a good word. But what does it mean? It means it's our selfish and rebellious disposition against God. It is the best definition I've heard is sin is dishonoring God by preferring other things instead of him and then acting on those preferences. And that is a definition of counterfeit worship as Paul will show us in, in Romans 1, 18-25. Let's read these passages together. Verse, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about them is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that, he, that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. We see in here that Paul, the issue of that God's judgment on the world is, is primarily an issue of worship, particularly False worship, or what I'm calling counterfeit worship. It appears like worship, but it's really not true worship. And we, we don't. The issue, he says, the claim, God's claim against humanity, all humanity, everybody is the same. We claim to worship God, but we don't. We, have, we worship uh, anything and everything else. And, and, to, um, if, and we, we call, and I've been calling this just primarily counterfeit worship. And the reason is, if you look at the passage, it really talks about worship and uses counterfeit language. For example, in verse 23, he says, And we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds, animals, and creeping things. So we exchanged, there's a switch here. We exchanged the glory of the immortal God. And what did we swap it for? We swap it for images resembling things. That's counterfeit worship. And it's more explicit in verse 25 where he says, because they exchanged, again, notice the swap, notice the switching. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And what did they do? Worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So he's even more explicit there saying that the exchange happens and what happens, the result of that is people make this swap and they worship the creature, things that God made instead of the God who made them. That is counterfeit worship. The Bible often talks about this as idolatry. Idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping and serving idols. And, and most of us, when we hear in our, in our culture, hear idols and idolatry, we say, oh, that's old stuff. That's ancient stuff. Or that's, that's stuff in the, in the jungles. They, they do idol stuff. I don't, I don't worship a statue. I don't worship an, uh, some kind of object. I don't have anything in my house or that I go to. Uh, that I worship. And we think of idols as things, and idols are much more than things. 
Idols go much deeper. The, the descending of the idols is they go from an idea, the futility of our thinking and the darkening of our hearts. It gets so worse, it becomes an object, even creeping things. But the essence behind it is where our hearts are at. Bill Clem, in his book, uh, Disciple, talks about an account where he was training pastors on a training mission, and he began his training by saying, to them, quote, 100% of your pastoral counseling will be involving identifying and confronting idols. And he said, uh, for a big part of the guys, the pushback was, whoa, whoa, whoa. We, our people don't have idols. They have issues. They have issues. And Bill goes on to say, what's behind the issues? The reason your people have financial issues, relational issues, emotional issues is because they have idols. And he went on in the training to show that to them. Now, you still might be thinking, yeah, what, what, what is an idol? What does counterfeit worship look like in our lives? Well, Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods, which is another word for idols, to explain in our culture, our American culture, why we really do have idols and what it is. And I want to just read a brief section. He, has, he defines it. So, People pick up this book and say, yeah, I'm not sure this is really applies to us. The subtitle of the book is Empty Promises of Money, Sex, Power, and the Only Hope That Matters. He identifies the three primary idols in our culture, money, sex, and power, and deals with them. But here's how he defines being an idol. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential in your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol is such a controlling position in our heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotion and financial resources on it without giving it a second thought. It can be family or children, a career, making money, an achievement or critical acclaim, or saving face in social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your, your beauty, your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, and even success in Christian ministry. When your meaning of life is to fix someone else's life, we, we may call it codependency, but it is really idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I, feel like, I will feel like my life has meaning. Then I'll know, then I know I'll have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe what kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. Anything becomes more, anything If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity, then it is an idol. Now, that's very broad, and I hope to a certain degree it rung true, but I I don't want to move too quickly away from the definition. I don't want to move too quickly away from thinking, okay, that's 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 about an idol. I, I would really like us to get a little personal here today to think about what he said. So I have taken his quote and made it into six questions. 
Six questions that we, and I'm going to ask that you personally ask it for yourself. These questions, by the way, you don't need to write them down. They're in, the, they're in that handout sheet. So if you don't get them now, you can get them on your way out. They're by the door as you leave. So I want to walk through. And as I read the question, I want you to think for, you're just going to pause for five or ten seconds, not long. But don't be too quick to dismiss the question. Think about it. Some, I'm going to guess, are going to resonate more than others. Let's read some of them. The first one. Is there anything more important to me than God? Is there anything more important to me than God? The second one. Does anything absorb my heart and imagination more than God? Does anything absorb my heart and my imagination, my thinking, my fantasies more than God? Do I seek, third one, do I seek anything to give me what only God can give? True identity, acceptance, security, significance? Do I seek anything to give me what only God can give? Fourth, is there anything so central and essential in my life that should I lose it, my life would feel hardly worth living? Is there anything so central and essential in my life that should I lose it, my life would feel hardly worth living? Fifth, is there anything that has so much a controlling position in my heart that I can spend most of my passion and energy, my emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. Six, is there anything that I took look at and say in my heart of hearts, if I have that, that thing, then I'll feel my life has meaning, then I'll know I'll have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. If you have answered or feel the affirmative into any of these questions, it may indicate that you are involved with counterfeit worship. You have idols in your life. And the answer to having an idol of a life is to renounce that idol. We need to acknowledge that it really is false worship. We need to, to, re, uh, to renounce them and say this, identify that this is wrong. It's robbing God of his glory, and it is what it is, sin. And then we need to turn our hearts and our minds to worshiping the true and living God, which is the gospel. And that takes us to our second point. We can live lives of worship by renouncing counterfeit worship, but the second aspect of it is remembering why we worship. Remembering why we worship. In his life and death, Jesus surrendered himself completely to the Father, and contrary to the description of Romans 1, he did honor him as God and gave thanks to him. He did not exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. Jesus did not exchange the truth of God for a lie. Jesus did worship and serve the Creator. In other words, because Jesus did live a life of worship to the Father, we now are able to live a life of worship 
to the Father. Where, where do we get this idea? Well, in Romans 3, a few chapters later, Paul explains this. In Romans 3, 21 through 26, and I'm going to read these verses to you. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that, has, that is in Christ Jesus. For God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to, re, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who, is, who has faith in Christ. So he identifies, the fun, again, the fundamental problem that Christ died for was counterfeit worship. We see this in verse 23, for example. He says that everybody's out of excuse, and he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's echoing what he said in Romans 1, where we exchange the glory of God for immortal images. Or immortal God for images. This passage leverages the imagery of the sprinkling of blood on the Day of Atonement, which is the day of worship for Israel, and points that Christ is the final fulfillment and replacement for all of that so that we can truly worship God as he intends us to. Jesus is the unique, perfect, and unrepeatable sacrifice for our sins. Notice what this also says about God. It says about God that he, is ju- he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith. God is just. He demands the sin accounted for, but he is also at the same time the justifier. In other words, God demands justice, but God provides justice. God demands a penalty for sin. God pays the penalty for sin. God demands righteousness. God provides righteousness. God deserves glory. God provides glory. We see this in the truth that the glory of God revealed in Christ was a big part of what his life on earth was about. For example, in John 1, where Jesus came, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The description John gives of Jesus on earth is, he's here full of glory. We also read in Ephesians 1 when we were there that we need to remember why God has done so many things for us in Christ. All the, in, in Ephesians 1, he listed numerous, numerous things. And he said, for example, beginning in verse 11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we might be the first to hope in Christ. Why? To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. Then he goes on. In him you also, that includes us, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. All the benefits that we have in Christ ultimately are to the praise of glory. Of his glory. That's the gospel. That's the essence of the gospel. And, and have you, if you have responded to the gospel, remember he said up there, he's just and the justifier to those who have faith in Christ. Not to the whole world, but to those who have faith in Christ. If you have not had faith, he is going to be just. 
But those who have faith in Christ, he is both the just and the justifier. He has provided justification so we can stand in freedom and acceptance before him. If we have responded to the gospel message and believing in Jesus, then this is true for us. Our lives are to the praise of his glory. If you have not responded to the gospel, then I urge you to do so because the benefits don't come unless you have faith, confident trust that those are true for you. And, and, and if you're not sure whether or not you've accepted Christ or you've believed in your heart for Christ, then I encourage you to talk to somebody, Josh, myself, somebody else, a friend, but don't wait to do so. Sometimes I think we as Christians forget all the benefits we have in Christ are to the praise of his glorious grace. We forget. Sometimes just out of absent-mindedness, sometimes out of busyness, often out of neglect. We just forget. In Romans 1, we wrote, we, we, we wrote, we heard, for although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks to him. That's why they're condemned. And I think we could tweak that a little bit and say, for although we know, for us Christians, for although we know the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ, we do not honor him as God or give thanks to him. I was talking a week ago, I was doing a training, and I was talking to a guy who um, shared some stuff that he was struggling, some significant struggles. He works for a very large organization, a company. He's been there for over 15 years and worked very hard and is very good at what he does. And his boss left the, the company, and he was the heir apparent. He said, everybody in the department said, well, you're it. Why even bother applying for the job? You're, you're the guy to go, they're going to go to. And uh, lo and behold, he was passed over and some, to, to the department's surprise. And they, the company brought in somebody from outside the department to be his boss. Okay, it happens. It, it set him back a little bit, but it happens. He's going to keep working. So then he found out, though, that not only does he have to do his own job still, but he also at the same time had to train his new boss because his new boss wasn't from that department, didn't know what things, how things worked. So the only way for him to train his new boss was to do his boss's job. So he did his job, and he did his boss's job, and his boss watched him do the work so he could learn how to do the job. Now, he said that he worked, on average, 14 hours a day for 52 consecutive days. 52 consecutive days, 14 hours without a single day off. Because he was committed to the company, committed to what they were doing. He wanted the department to succeed. And guess what? The department succeeded. The department did what they needed to do. And who got the credit? Who got the credit? The new boss. The new boss. Publicly acclaimed for his moving this department forward. And the guy I was talking to struggled with that. Maybe, maybe something like this has happened to you. It's not unusual. Right? Well, I want us to think a little bit past this. How do you think God feels when someone or something else gets the credit for what he does. What happens? How do you think he reacts? How do you think God has feelings, by the way? He has feelings. How do you think he feels when we give credit and praise 
and accredit um, due, in other words, counterfeit worship, to somebody or something for the benefits of our life. We quickly and often forget that we were, as we saw in Romans 2, dead in our sins, in bondage to the world, Satan, and our selfish desires, and therefore children of wrath, deserving like the rest of mankind. We often forget that because for some of us that's old news. And we forget to remind ourselves of verse 4 of chapter 2, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That is the gospel that we believe. That is the benefits that shows us the awesomeness of the God we serve and worship. These are the reasons we worship God. Not just once a week on Sunday, but every day, everywhere. Many of us, uh, if we, we know that this is true cognitively, we know that this is true, and we have believed it, but we struggle with living it day to day. Let's be honest, we struggle reminding ourselves that this is true day to day. Sometimes we often live as like it's not even true. I think I suffer, as I'm going to guess many of you suffer, if not all of us suffer, with worship drift. We, we drift. We gradually are, gradually, and it's not just a sudden turning away, it's gradually our attention and our affection that belong to God drift over to other things, idols and counterfeit worship. And that's why it's so hideous, because we don't even realize that it's happening. Now, If we wanted to identify a counterfeit product, any counterfeit product, money, electronics, handbags, what is the key way to identify a counterfeit of anything? This is not rocket science. You need to know what the authentic thing is. If you know the authentic thing, you can do it. And you've probably heard the illustration that people who are trained to identify counterfeits spend their time studying the real thing more than they do studying the counterfeits. What's true with money and purses and other electronics is true with the gospel. If we're going to identify false gospels, counterfeit worship, the best way for us to do that is to study the gospel itself. And we can just say, yep, you know, that doesn't sound right. That, that doesn't connect the way it's supposed to. It, it may be and probably is counterfeit. Remember, counterfeits look a lot like the originals, otherwise they wouldn't even be sold, but but it doesn't make a difference. They're not the originals. And we need to know that with the gospel. That is why it is essential that we remember and rehearse the gospel and the truth of the gospel frequently to our lives. If we're going to live lives of worship, we need to do three things. We need to renounce counterfeit worship. We need to remember why we worship. We also need to realign our lives to express worship. We continually remember the gospel as we remind ourselves of it and rehearse it. We remind ourselves of the reason we worship, the foundation and motivation for all the things we worship. Where do we get this? We get this in Romans 12. Romans 12. Excuse me, verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to, the, to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Paul begins, Paul has written 11, he writes 16 chapters in the book of Romans. The first 11 are the gospel and the gospel truth. This is what Christ has done for you, and this is why it's all a big deal. This verse, these two verses are a pivoting point where now he's saying, therefore, so what? Who cares? This is how it applies to your life. So he spends 12 through 16 applying it to their lives and our lives. So this is the pivot there for that. And he says, by the mercies of God. In other words, by the means of the mercies of God. In other words, because of the gospel, the first 11 verses, now I got something for you to do. And the very first thing he tells them to do is to offer themselves to worship God. Not just an event on Sunday, but with their lives. And he says brothers, which is a masculine plural, which means brothers and sisters, men and women. We, we say that kind of thing. Hey, you guys need to go do this or that. It means both. But even more important, when he calls them brothers, he's saying, you who have been recipients of God's mercy, this is what you need to do. And sometimes I think, maybe you don't feel this way, but I've often felt, and I've struggled with this, that, that often feel like worshiping God when, when we're living well. When, when things are going well in my life, I feel like I'm doing okay, then I can say, thank you, Jesus, for what's going on. But the biblical model is that exactly the opposite. The biblical model is actually the opposite. The biblical truth is that we live well when we first worship well, when we do that well. And, and this is it's illustrated out throughout the Bible. There's a key place that I draw our attention to in the Old Testament. If I said, what were the, the primary rules? If you think of a, a rules to live by, what comes to your mind from the Old Testament? The Ten Commandments, okay? Thank you, Josh. The Ten Commandments. It's, it's true for everybody. The Ten Commandments. This is what they are. Here, I'm boiling it down to ten things to do this. So don't do that, okay? But we, we think, well, if I do that, then God will be happy with us. We'll be right. We can worship God. Well, we get the Ten Commandments reversed. For example, in Exodus 20, he lists the Ten Commandments. And, and first of all, we see in verses 1 and 2 that God takes the initiative to uh, to bring Israel out of suffering and bondage of Egypt. He says, um, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you, brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So the very first thing of the Ten Commandments is redemption, salvation. God's power saved the people. First thing out to shoot. Then he says, Your first response, the very first things you need to know when responding to this redemption, is the first two commandments. And that is to worship only God and not have any other counterfeit gods. You shall love the Lord, no other gods before you. You should not make for yourselves any graven image. You should not bow down to them or serve them. So the very first commandments after he says, I saved you, is worship the right God. Worship the God who saved you. Then, and only then, he goes on to the other things that we often think of with the Ten Commandments. You know, don't take the Lord's name in vain, Sabbath, honor father and mother, do not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, or covet. Notice the progression. That's my point. Notice the progression. First, God graciously rescues us from misery and slavery. Second, we are to respond in grateful worship to him. Third, we are then to live lives that reflect both that grace and worship. You make sense? Martin Luther of the 1500s was famous for, for, for pointing out 
that you can't break the last eight commandments without break, first breaking the first two commandments. You, you don't break the other eight unless you're worshiping a false god. It's also true the other way. If you do break the first two and worship a counterfeit god, you will break the other eight. The Bible's over and over is the story of that. And this is why, by the way, Bill Clem got up there and said, all those issues that you're facing is really idolatry. Because if your issues have to do with the other eight commandments, it's because you're not worshiping God. And we need to remember that. You don't, you're not getting the gospel right. He says in verse 1, Romans 12:1. let's just walk through this very quickly. I appeal to your brothers, in a view of God's mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, as holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. We lose the punch of this verse, if I can say it that way, the significance, because he has a big play on words. We don't offer sacrifices in our culture. We don't, we don't get up on a regular basis and start hacking away on animals and bleeding blood all over the place and all this, all this kind of stuff. So what he's saying here, we're like, yeah, okay, okay. To their culture is, whoa, 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 whoa. This is, this is reverse. This is a paradox. You're using a play on words to give us the opposite of what's supposed to happen. For example, he says it goes from everyone, a sacrifice is something that everyone does repeatedly over and over again, year and year. And, but now it's something that Christ has done once for everyone. And it goes from a religious event, you gather together, to being everyday life. He goes from something done by a priest or a Levite to something we do personally ourselves. He goes from animal sacrifices that are distinct from the giver. You don't kill yourself, you kill the animal, to personal offering of ourselves and our lives. So, that's the, that's the thrust of this. His original, Romans, when they read this, would have, whoa, that's, that's really weird. Now, what does he mean? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's a, to present is a standard word for offering a sacrifice. It's intentional. It's not passive. It's decisive. So visual yourself. Visualize. They would have. They would have visualized themselves wrestling that sheep, that goat, that whatever they're doing. It's bleeding and, 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 and uh, thrashing around, and they have to hoist it up and hold it down on the, on the offering. That's what it means to present an offering not just a passive thing you have to wrestle the animal there that's what they heard and he says he says your bodies he's not he doesn't mean just skin and bones but he does include our skin and bones it is our bodies our bodies are to be offered to god as worship not 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 our total selves it is our total selves our whole worship our conduct uh, how we behave in our bodies and stuff like that he said uh, paul says in romans 6 to present yourselves to god as those who've been brought from death to life and he uses that same kind of language in, in presenting ourselves as a whole so we know what it means. He says, this is the biggest paradox, a living sacrifice. What is a living sacrifice? A living a sacrifices die. That's the point. He calls them a living sacrifice. These are not only not dead, they're not going to get killed. But they're alive. We're supposed to offer living ourselves as living sacrifice, which is, by the way, good news, Right? But the reason we can say that is because he's already told us, like in Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were dead in our trespasses, we're made alive together with Christ. Here's the irony of the paradox of the gospel. We don't, we don't kill ourselves in sacrifices. We already were dead, so Christ made us alive, and we present ourselves alive to God. That's the paradox here of the gospel. Holy and acceptable to God. 
Our sacrifice is holy and acceptable, not because we're holy and acceptable, but because it already is holy and acceptable. If you remember, back in Ephesians when we started it, what, how, how did Paul address Ephesians? What did he call them? He did not call them Christians. He called them saints. Saints. Paul does the same thing for the Romans. He starts the letter calling them the saints in Rome, the holy ones, the sanctified. That's who they already are. That's their identity. That's who they are. So the holiness they're offering to God is the holiness they've already been provided to in Christ. Our identity is holy and is reflected and is expressed by how we live our lives, even our lives in our tangible body. A simple example that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians, and that is sex. Sex. There's counterfeit sex and true sex. And he says to them the same kind of language. He says to them in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, flee sexual immorality. In other words, flee counterfeit sex. There's false sex. And he goes on and says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? That's holy. Whom you have from God. You, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. That's the gospel. So glorify, worship God in your body. Talking about sex. Sex in the, con- in the context of a marriage, is an act of worship. Amen. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we're a little slow here. We're, we're going we're gonna to be dealing that in the fall, apparently, okay? The series, okay? It, it really is. And we can make the case out of Hebrews. We can make the case we will talk about it in Ephesians 5, when we get to Ephesians 5 in a couple months. It is there. Our bodies, how we live with our bodies, even if something as tangible as sex can be counterfeit or it can be real. Both are an act of worship. Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians. He says, which is your spiritual worship? Now, there's a danger here with a phrase like spiritual worship in English. It's actually a compound word. Um, Spiritual worship can be misleading. We can sometimes think of it as inward or mystical or private. My spiritual worship is just me and Jesus. That's not what he's talking about. Um, some, Some translations call it rational worship. The problem with that is we can think, well, if I understand it, that's good enough. But that's not worship. Understanding something is not worship. Uh, the best definition I saw was understanding worship. Not that you understand worship, but your worship that comes from a proper understanding. Our thinking and our actions are aligned with the truth of the gospel. We remember why we worship, which is the gospel. Our lives are being in step with the truth of the gospel. That's what he means. It's a lifestyle of worship. It's being aligned with the truth of the gospel is spiritual worship. And there is no relationship, no responsibility, no activity of our lives that's outside the sphere of worship. Paul said, so whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That just about covers it. In fact, Jesus presses this a little farther. Jesus himself presses this a little farther. He says that not only are we to live our lives to express worship to God, but we should live our lives in such a way that other people see our lives and worship God. He says this, for example, in Matthew 5. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds or good works, our lives, and give glory, worship, to the Father who is in heaven. Our lives should not only express worship, but people should see such a gospel difference in our lives that ultimately they will worship God because they know us. So I want to pause here, just like we did with the other questions. I want to pause here and think about 
realigning our lives. Make it personal to you. I have six questions I want you to think about again. They'll be up on the screen. They're in the handout. I want you to think about these and about um, how your life, does your life express worship to God? First one. Since I know God, how in my everyday life do I honor him as God and give thanks to him? Since I know God, how in my everyday life do I honor him as God and give thanks to him? Two, of all the things I do each day, what do I do to increase my knowledge of God and to stir up my affections for him? Of all the things I do each day, what do I do to increase my knowledge of God and to stir up my affections for him? Third, what is, what is the lived out evidence that my life is built on God's mercy? What is the lived out evidence that my life is built on God's mercy? Four, how does my life demonstrate that I treasure Christ more than the treasures of this world? How does my life demonstrate that I treasure Christ more than the treasures of this world? Five, do I love what God loves and grieve over what grieves God? If so, how do I know? If not, why not? And the last one is one that's been kicking my butt for weeks. In my life, do I view God as a means to an end or as the end? In my life, do I view God as a means to an end or is he the end? How do we realign our lives and expression of this? As you think through this, you might find some areas that you need work on or need to come before the Lord and, and ask for more grace and mercy for your help. Paul in, 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 in verse 2 tells us where we need to go. We're not going to elaborate verse 2. We're, I'm wrapping it up, so we're not going to elaborate it. But I just want to point you to there for two reasons. One is, he says in verse 2, okay, I want you to offer your bodies living sacrifices. Okay, Paul, the first reaction they would have said, whoa, this is weird. How do we do this? And his next verse tells us, do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by, the te- by, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good, acceptable, and perfect. He's saying, don't, don't be pressed the way you were. This is like Ephesians 2 all over again. Remember what the gospel is and how that's going to change your heart and your minds and your lives. And then look forward to what God's going to do. The reason, not only because of time today, but in Ephesians, Paul does the same thing. First three chapters, this is the gospel and why it's important to you. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, he does the exact same thing. Now, in light of that, here's how you change your mind and your heart and your life and live that way. So we are going to expand on this in the coming months. The other thing I want to bring to your attention is the Pathways Projects. The Pathway we do every month. We did one for Scripture. We did one for prayer. This is one for worship. 
This one's a little more challenging. It's a little bit different format. I'm not going to go through it. You can, you can read it. It should be self-explanatory. If it's not self-explanatory, please let me know. Um, and ask me, email me. My, my information's on the website. Um, or talk to me. But this is to help you and to have not only look at your life about renouncing counterfeit worship, remembering why we worship, and realigning our, our lives to worship, but it is also to be a, uh, a conversation starter that you have with your home communities, your families, with other people, as you share some of these answers to some of these questions. I'm confident that it will lead to some good and profitable discussions. I want to end today by reminding you that why we end and always include communion in our worship. Jesus asks us to do this, to declare his death until he comes. And another way we can say the reason we take communion is so that we can come before him and remind ourselves of the benefit of his death and his resurrection and that we are able to say this is the true gospel so therefore we can renounce false gospels, false worships, false um, worship. It, it is a very explicit means that God worked in so that we remember why we worship the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And it helps us each week to realign ourselves, our lives, not just in a worship service, but as we go forward into the week, we are here, we get forgiveness for last week and and mercy, and we get the same mercy and grace going into the coming week. And we all need it. Communion is a very graphic way that we remind ourselves of this. I also want to encourage you, you, if you want to talk, Josh and I would love to talk to you. If you need prayer, we would love to pray for you. Um, I want to encourage you also in those kind of things. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you uh, have given us more and more uh, reasons for worshiping you. That you are a God not only worthy of worship, but you give us the means of worship. That we can come before you in Christ And know that in Christ we have both the freedom and the confidence to receive grace and mercy and to also extol you with praise and glory. So as we go into this time, Lord, of singing, responding to the word, I pray we can do so not just with our voices, but with our hearts and minds engaged with expressing our love and our confidence and our joy and your glory to you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.